episode 120, The Invisible Destroyer of Value and Quality. I'm talking about physician burnout. Today, I speak with Dyke Drummond, MD, also known as the Happy MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. We talk a lot these days about raising the value of delivered care, about the triple aim, improving quality, patient experience, and population health. And whenever we think about how to do this, it seems we immediately jump to processes or technology. But in doing so, we leap over one massive critical success factor, the people, the physicians and other providers who are expected to do or use whatever it is that we are telling them to do or use. Said another way, if at best we're getting apathetic, half-hearted usage of our awesome process or technology, it really isn't going to do very much. Physician burnout matters. It matters to the bottom line as much as it matters to the individuals that are working on your team. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value Dyke. Hi, Stacey. It's great to be here. Today, we are going to talk about physician burnout, your area of expertise. Burnout's an issue for anybody who draws a paycheck from a healthcare organization. I specifically work with physicians because I am one, and I'm a coach, trainer, and consultant for physician burnout, uh, helping individual docs recover and organizations create prevention strategies. But I can tell you that I focus on physicians because of my personal history, because they're very well studied and they're an important component of your delivery workforce if you're a healthcare executive. But anybody who draws a healthcare paycheck is at excess risk for burnout, including the executives themselves, because everybody has drunk the Kool-Aid of one of healthcare's prime directives, which is basically the patient comes first. Is that philosophically what the issue ultimately is, that by focusing so extensively on the patient that we're forgetting about we neglect the physician? Well, in my mind, it's a question of timing. It's a question of state changes and roles that we play. So for instance, I'm a physician And that's one of the roles that I play in my life. And when I'm a physician and I'm with patients, you want me to put the patient first. That's absolutely appropriate. But the challenge is the training of our medical education doesn't show us the off switch. And the Marcus Welby type doctor that you hold up on a pedestal is the person who always put his patients first and never took a vacation and all that kind of stuff. So it gets way out of whack. But any organization, any profession that puts another's interest ahead of their own and doesn't have an off switch is at excess risk for burnout. So healthcare is one, law enforcement, warfighting, military, teachers, nurses, doctors, and again, anybody inside the organization because we're all so focused on putting the patient first. Have you heard of the book, Patients Come Second? No. There's a book called Patients Come Second, written by a hospital administrator. I strongly recommend it. His observation was this. If we focus everything on the patient, we burn out our people. But if we focus on taking good care of our people, they naturally and automatically take good care of the patients. So let's just focus on our people and, and let the patients come second. 
I think that is also the philosophy of Richard Branson has a meme that's floating around, which basically says, if you take care of your employees, your customers will get taken care of in Zappos. Also, not the well, if, if you look at interviews of highly respected business leaders, they'll always come to that question of what's your secret to your success? They'll say we hire the best people we can find and we take really good care of them. In healthcare, it's the exact opposite. We hire the best people we can find and we grind them to dust. Based on what you just said, and Marcus Welby, I forget when that show was on, but it, let's just say, wasn't in the past two, maybe three decades. You know, so this is not a new issue and healthcare has transpired. And, and this is kind of a softball question, but why now? Just to be clear, I'll give you some data points. Since the beginning of the measurements of burnout in the 1970s, the average burnout rate measured by the Maslach Burnout Inventory of any population of physicians is about one-third. Right now, research is showing that we're up around 50% in the United States. And the reason it's important now is the massive mergers and acquisitions in the healthcare space over the last 10 years. So we used to have independent practices all around town, but now we have huge physician employers and the employer is taking responsibility for an entire workforce of doctors. You didn't have that responsibility before. It was everybody on their own. But now that every hospital has 100 doctor employees. And my typical client is a three, five, seven hospital system with up to a thousand employee physicians. You've got a whole very specialized workforce that you better learn how to take care of, especially if their burnout rates are going up because of the pervasive negative and unmeasured effects of burnout on quality, safety, and patient satisfaction. I was just going to ask you that. So it sounds like there is a definite impact that we're suggesting here. Burnout negatively impacts patient care, that there's a direct correlation between unhappy physicians, providers, and the patients that they see. Well, and it's actually deeper and wider than that because you don't have to be unhappy to be burned out. As a matter of fact, burnout can be apathetic, helpless, hopeless. Uh, basically, you're in survival mode. But the other thing, the rise of the employee-physician pool is one force. The other one is that we've changed our payment mechanisms to emphasize patient satisfaction, quality, and safety. Those things never used to matter. You got paid for doing a procedure or seeing a patient, regardless of the quality of the patient's satisfaction. But now almost everybody's payments, and this is at the organization level, you're passing these things through to the doctor. Payments are at least in part predicated on passing some sort of patient satisfaction or quality threshold. Why does that inherently contribute to burnout? That doesn't necessarily contribute to burnout, but if your doctors are burned out, you're not going to make those milestones. Oh, I see. I see. But, if, but, but again, if you look at doctors and you look at burnout, it's always multifactorial. Everybody's stress profile is different. But if you look at what Marcus Welby had to do in terms of documentation and meeting certain quality indicators, flu vaccines, mammograms, uh, colonoscopies, all that kind of stuff, if you looked at all he had to do on his couple of index cards per patient – and you look at what our doctors have to do, right, with EMR, 45 clicks, text messages with patients throughout the course of the day, there's an amazing difference in the documentation and information management that a doctor has to handle these days. I'm putting myself in the position of a healthcare leader, and I'm thinking to myself as the healthcare leader, hey, I need to improve my quality outcomes or my patient satisfaction scores or my efficiency or just pick some kind of organizational imperative. And now I'm thinking to myself, huh, do I 
institute some new process or buy some new technology, or maybe burnout is a contributor to this. And actually, processes in technology are, are secondary. And how do you determine how big an issue? Is there some symptoms, organizational symptoms of pervasive burnout, which would indicate to a healthcare leader that this is a underlying cause of issues that perhaps needs to be addressed before another process gets laid down or something? Burnout is sort of like a lens through which you see your workforce. It's a general tendency. So I always assume that any workplace that I go into, that the rate of burnout in their physician pool is equal to the national averages we're seeing now, somewhere between 40 and 50%. And burnout in your doctors, since burnout and engagement are inversely related, I mean, the original thinking on the definition of burnout is that it's the opposite of engagement. So when you see doctors disengaged, apathetic, resisting any new initiatives that you put in, disruptive behavior, turnover in staff, all of those things are signs of burnout. And whenever I see a healthcare leader talking about implementing a new process, let's say they're going to put lean on their workflow in the workplace, or they're going to implement a new piece of information technology, or we're doing a pass-through mandate like ICD-10 and things like that, the successful deployment of or implementation of that new process is dependent upon an engaged workforce. And unfortunately, you don't have one unless you're at the same time simultaneously carrying out system-wide burnout prevention activities. See, I personally think, you know, you didn't used to spend a lot of money on IT and EMR, but now that's a core piece of your business and everybody's got a line item in their budget for that every year. From now, as far as you want to see into the future, the responsible organization that understands the health of the provider is core to patient satisfaction and quality. We'll have an ongoing line item for burnout prevention in the organization. What does that look like, burnout prevention? The first thing you have to do is understand that the way leaders look at issues like burnout is part of the challenge. Because in the English language, if you have a goal, anything that obstructs you from reaching your goal, you will call a problem. And fundamentally, burnout is not a problem. Because the word problem has a very specific meaning. Problems have solutions. And let me just ask you this, Stacey. Mm -hmm. If I apply a solution to a problem, what happens to the problem? It is no longer a problem. It goes away. So one step gone, that's a problem. I th hope that just in saying that, you can see that the burnout is fundamentally not a problem. What it is is a perpetual balancing act. It is actually a dilemma. The balancing act is the amount of energy that the physician burns in their life outside of medicine and at work, so that energy drain, and then some ability to recharge themselves to maintain an energy balance, a positive energy balance where they can be healthy and contributing at work. Now, you can't solve a dilemma. It's not that you can't address it. It's just that it doesn't have a solution. So stop calling it a problem. Stop looking for a solution. The way you address a dilemma is with a strategy. And the best strategies are three to five steps. And because the risk of burnout never goes away, you have to turn these into habits. Regular things, a line item in the budget, a regular meeting, burnout prevention working group. And when I work with organizations, the organizational strategy is four steps. However, the minimum level of complexity I can reduce this to is that every individual provider, every individual doctor, every individual CEO needs their own personal prevention strategy. They need a canary strategy. So they're the canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. And then the organization needs its own simultaneous organizational strategy. The canary strategy you can call resilience. So I am 
working specific steps every week to maintain my energy level. And the coal mine strategy, the organizational strategy is we are working consistently to de-stress and detox the conditions of the workplace. Let's start out just because I'm intrigued by this canary idea. So let's start out with a personal strategy and then move on into your four steps for organizational strategy. But relative to the personal strategy, what's maybe the core tenets of that? Or what do you think that it's most important that people understand about what that is? In my experience, nobody teaches burnout recognition or prevention in any training program that I've ever seen, at least not effectively. And so I end up picking up the walking wounded on the far side. I work with physicians out in practice who have career-threatening burnout, and I have about 2,000 hours worth of coaching experience. There's a couple of things that fall into every one of my clients' strategies who recovers from burnout. One is to build an off switch on their programming so that they have a clear separation between the doctor role and who they are when they're at home. So they can stop being a doctor at home and focus on recharging. They often have a strategy to build their life into their weekly schedule. It's a weekly scheduling strategy. And we also always work on mindfulness, meaning having a technique where at work you can refocus and release stress in the moment and become the eye of the storm at work. Those are three things. And then each individual doctor also has specific things about the work they do that they find stressful. We create an ideal practice description and we start to work on those specific stressors of their job while they take better care of themselves, both at work and at home energetically. When you say an off switch, do you mean some sort of ritual? Exactly. So for instance, doctors tend to keep their doctor hat on all the time. And here's the way I say it when I'm in a room of 300 doctors doing a training. It's like, have you ever found yourself sitting at home thinking about work? And of course, they all laugh because it's a silly thing for me to say, right? Because doctors are taught through their medical education, which lasts a minimum of seven years. I'm a family doc, four years of medical school, three years of residency. We're taught to be on all the time, or at least we used to carry beepers and phones. And as soon as it rings, we're into the doctor mode again. But the boundary ritual is a specific act that you do on the way home or when you arrive at home, when you're not on call, to shut the doctor off, come all the way home and allow the recharge to begin. Because if you're sitting at home thinking about work, you're not recharging. You're just draining from your doctor role in a different location. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's move on to the organizational strategy, which you said the one that you distill it down to consists of four main steps. Yep. So the first thing you do is you launch a burnout prevention working group inside your physician leadership. This is a group of doctors. And all you have to do is say who's interested in in a wellness committee or doing something about burnout. And you'll get volunteers from your organization. That's your burnout prevention working group. And they coordinate it. What I teach is a four-part strategy. Part number one is to complete the medical education for all your providers, meaning live trainings, books, teach them about burnout, burnout symptoms, causes, effects, Uh, prevention strategies teach them a process for developing their own canary strategy, resilience strategy. I teach 117 different ways to prevent burnout. You can choose from those 117 to find the three to five that are going to work for you. So education is step one. And it's the employer's responsibility to educate the people because they aren't learning it in their training programs. Step two is a very highly focused and special form of process improvement where you find a little, and if somebody is listening and they're lean savvy, it's a Gemba, or if you're not lean savvy, it's an innovation 
sandbox, you pick a ward or a wing, a small little piece of your organization, ideally five to 20 doctors in a single specialty in a single site where you have an on-site burnout prevention champion, somebody who is a member of your working group is the leader of that wing. And you do a very tight little survey to them. What's the number one, what's the number two, and what's the number three biggest stressors in your day? And from that survey, you create a list, a weighted average of the top stressors for those people in that service on that wing. And you then run process improvement projects on those stressors. They tell you what's frying their bacon, you get on it. (laughs) And because it's a tight little sandbox, you can turn these projects around really fast. You can send out the surveys this week, get them the answers next week, be live on a project in week three, and have measurable results that can be disseminated to the rest of the group in week six. Give me an example of a common stressor that you see and then the quick fix. A simple one that everybody can relate to is the way that different doctors, their comfort levels with EMR are different. So if I have a department, and it doesn't matter what the department is, where there's eight providers, there's going to be one power user, right, who loves it, gets home on time with their charts all done. There's going to be three people who hate it, feels like the devil wrote it. And one of the defining features between those people is that the power user is fully templated and the EMR hater is not. So one of the things that you'll see in the surveys of stress in any ward or wing is going to be documentation or EMR. They'll just write the letters EMR. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you walk in and you're doing a process to improve people's ability to get the documentation done without putting so much energy into it, templates will always come up. And the challenge is how do you get template penetration across the whole eight people in the department so that everybody's not using the same templates, right? But what's templatable is templated so that it's single keystrokes instead of writing things out longhand. And so you may come in with your lean team if you've identified EMR. EMR as being one of the things you're going to do. And you may help the folks work out their own templates. Everybody's got a stack and everybody's getting home sooner at the end of the day. One of the challenges about doing this kind of work internally, though, is that most leaders inside organizations have completely forgot how to market. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you'll create a program and you'll say you need to engage or you need to be more engaged. But they forget that engagement is step two of the process. So it's enrollment, engagement, alignment. So when I'm teaching people about putting a template program together, let's just talk about this for a second. So Stacy, what's the benefit of a template? It enables more efficiency and What's the benefit of more efficiency? Benefit of more efficiency is that you can get more done in less time. And what's the benefit of getting more done in less time? Well, either you can go home faster. I can go home sooner. Yes, yes. So so what I say to people is, because how many times do you have to make a template? Once. Once. And how long can you use a template for? Until the rules change. You can go through an EMR migration and take your templates with you. So what I tell people, and this is the enrollment piece, how many of you want to get home sooner without working harder? As opposed to, we've got a template workshop you have to go to. Mm-hmm. I say, how many of you want to get home sooner without working? Well, that'd be awesome. How do I do that? Okay, great. It's called the template. Let me teach you about it. So you enroll them and they will engage automatically. But EMR, team documentation, there's all sorts of things that the department will bring up that they would like you to work on. But the key is you survey them. The whole culture change of asking questions and being immediately responsive and working projects to ease my stress is a massive cultural shift for most organizations. But let's go back. Education is number one. Mm -hmm. 
process improvement is number two. Meaningful crisis intervention is number three, meaning having a physician-specific 24-7 hotline if somebody wants support, and having an informal proactive crisis intervention program as well, meaning anytime anybody has a bad outcome or a malpractice suit throughout the system, we send out people to see how they're doing. We don't wait for them to ask. How do you identify proactively? I mean, is it like a peer thing? I see my colleagues yes. struggling. Dr. Smith, hey, uh, the, and again, every, the departments that are set up or the services that are set up for this, like one of them I know of with one of my clients in Ohio is called, they call it Heal the Healer. So if one of my partners lost a baby in the middle of the night, I would say to the Heal the Healer people, Doc, my partner, Dr. Smith, lost a baby last night. Let's send somebody out to talk to him. Or if you want it to be super informal, I can call it, I call it the bad outcome hot dish delivery team, right? So <laughs> yeah, four or five people, I'm from the Northern, Northern Midwest. And if something bad happens in the Northern Midwest, you bake a hot dish mm -hmm. and you go visit them, right? Mm -hmm. So the bad outcome hot dish delivery team, which we can recruit with just a show of hands at a public training is just four or five doctors who've agreed, Hey, if somebody has a bad outcome, are you willing to bake a hot dish and go check out how they're doing? That's really easy to recruit for very informal and it counteracts what happens in our culture and as physicians, our, our conditioning, our brainwashing is if something bad happens, we tend to avoid that person as if the badness will get on us like it's infectious. If an organization goes through these steps that you have outlined. There's one more. Oh, <laughs> do tell. Sorry. The, the last one is a cultural social calendar. Because another thing that happens is if I'm in a room with 300 doctors that are employed by a hospital, I'll say, how many of you have met somebody for the first time tonight? All the hands will go up. How many of you have still not seen somebody in the room you still not met? All the hands will go up again. That would have never happened back in the day when we were small independent practices. So the cultural connections collapse when the big conglomerates get formed, and typically the organization will not recreate them. They'll have a single Christmas party. No, you need an every month, every other month, very creative and in inclusive social calendar, and it's the highest and best use for one of your millennial doctor leaders because they'll have a Twitter hashtag for this group in a heartbeat. Yeah, and I've heard that that is actually very much exacerbated by certain technology elements. Like, for example, someone was talking about exactly what you're saying in the context of radiology, that you used to have to walk downstairs to get your films. So everybody's down talking to the radiologists and you see each other down there and having conversations. Meanwhile, now you can call up the films on in the EHR system. So nobody's got to talk to anybody. You know who it was? It was Robert Watchdark. And he was talking about how actually patient care suffers dramatically when people aren't talking to each other. Right. And especially if you are a six-person family practice office that just sold to the local hospital and became the 100th through 106th employee physician of theirs, and the people who are also employee physicians with you used to be your competitors, so you've never met them, never been friends with them. Now you're interacting with them only at the job site. I remember the 40 doctor group I was in, we knew everybody. We knew everybody's significant other. We went hunting with their children. There were big social bonds between us. And so often in these larger groups, the doctors are like ships passing in the night. They only bump into each other occasionally in a hallway 
between gerbil wheels, <laughs> right? So it, if you allow it to lie like that, you're missing a big piece of the culture that could bind you together and helps prevent burnout when you feel like you know and value and appreciate and like the people that you're working with. For those process improvements, it sounds exactly like you're saying that they're a series of quick hits. And then every time you roll something out, you do exactly what you said, which was enroll, engage. And what was the third one? It's enrollment, engagement, alignment in that order. But most people have lost the ability to enroll. So for instance, I'm an external consultant. I have to enroll you. I have to sell to you. You have to want what I'm selling. You have to say yes, and then you'll engage with me. Inside an organization, they just give you this really poorly named workshop and expect you to engage with it without attempting to enroll. You have to, as a member of the Burnout Prevention Working Group, you have to constantly be enrolling the doctors, and you also have to let them know when an innovation comes out of one of these pilot projects, that it came out of the pilot project from the Burnout Prevention Working Group, whatever it is you name that group. One of my clients calls it the Light Committee. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's inventive ways to name this, but it's doctors helping doctors create a less stressful workplace. We did this for you because you asked us for it. It's a very important cultural message. How many pilots get rolled out in your experience? I mean, is this like two a year or are they pumping out like three a month? No, it's one at a time because, again, this committee this working group hasn't existed before and they need, to, it's like uh, getting physically fit. You wouldn't walk into the gym and lift the biggest barbell in the rack, right? Unless you wanted to hurt yourself. So we start not with the biggest thing. We start with a project they can run, wrap their arms around, learn how to run quality projects. If you've got a free-floating project manager in your organization or a lean team, they're on the committee as well. And you work a project to completion, pick up another one, to completion. I like them to be sequential. And when a group gets good at it, they can do two or three at a time and might do a new wave every quarter. So if they were really good, really, I mean, several years down the road with full administrative support and an annual budget, they could do as many as a dozen projects in a year. Got it. So Eric Topol, and we had talked about this before, Dyke, Eric Topol has said that what's going to save medicine is the creative destruction of healthcare. What do you think about that? That's a book title, nothing more. If you look at his book, he's talking about digital destroying healthcare. That's fine. That's just a book title. Uh, if I wanted to apply uh, that book title to my work, I believe that the disruptive innovation for the healthcare employer of the future is the creative destruction of burnout. And the creative destruction of burnout consists of what we just exactly, talked about. Exactly what we've just talked about. Understanding it's not a problem. It's a dilemma. It needs an organized strategy as an ongoing pillar of the way you do business in the quadruple aim future of healthcare and realizing and understanding it at a cellular level that if we cannot create a workforce of doctors who are healthy, well-adjusted, <laughs> pleased with their employment, right? And, uh, surrounded by a supportive culture, counteract the programming of our medical education and complete their medical education around stress, stress management, and burnout. If we can't do that, we're accepting second-rate results in terms of patient satisfaction quality in our organization. 
Where can people who are interested in learning more find out about the work that you do, Dyke? Well, my website is thehappymd.com. So put the T-H-E on the front of it. Happymd.com is a porn site, so don't go there. It's the, <laughs> the happy thehappymd.com. I have so many free resources and uh, personal tools and leadership tools for burnout prevention are just all over the website. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Absolutely my pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.